planes, trains, and automobiles. I've been on the road, and today we're going to discuss what matters across the country. Here's what matters. Live from New York City, I'm Lauren Goodwin, and this is Market Matters from New York Life Investments. In this podcast, we bring you the best insights from across the New York Life Investments platform because we believe that by sharing perspectives and engaging with you, our listeners, we can all become better investors. Welcome, everybody. It's the week of February 27th, 2023, and today we are flipping the script. That's right. I'll take it from here. Normally, Lauren is the one asking me and our guests the questions, but today I'm turning the mic on her. We've both been hitting the ground running this year, talking to our sales partners, clients, agents, and in doing so, we get to have some really fascinating conversations with some very smart people, and we get to keep our finger on the pulse of how all sorts of investors are feeling. So Lauren has been in the field across the country for the past few weeks, so I wanted to interview her on what our clients are saying and feeling. So Lauren, you've just been in the field. Our team has so many touch points on many sides of our firm's distribution functions. So why don't we start there? What do we mean by you being in the field? What does that look like? Who are you meeting with? It's a great question, Julia, and thank you for having me today. We have, broadly speaking, three types of investors that we work with the most closely at New York Life Investments. One type is New York Life agents. Another are financial advisors in all the different groups of financial advisors and broker dealers throughout the country. And then a third is institutional clients. So think about a, a pension fund, perhaps, or another insurance company. Each of these different types of clients, just like any investor, has different sorts of questions and needs and considerations that they are making when they make investment decisions. And so it's really informative to get to speak with each of these different types of groups and learn what's on their mind. I will say that another way that we engage with these different client groups is from time to time speaking with their clients, whether it's giving a macroeconomic perspective or sharing our view on the markets, we are able to engage with those end clients as well as a way to provide information and education as a value add for the advisor or investor and their team. That's some awesome context about who we're interacting with on a daily basis and on these trips. And you're hearing a lot of different perspectives there. I think you mentioned six or seven different groups of people, all with a different perspective. So let's start out. What is the general mood? You've been to a lot of places with a lot of different people. Yeah, you know, I would say that the general mood is one of a sense of urgency. Last year was incredibly challenging for investors with both stock and bond prices on average moving lower, but a challenging macroeconomic environment and frankly, lower prices across many asset classes offers an opportunity for these investors to add value to their clients. So regardless of how assertive or conservative an allocation may be appropriate for a, a different investor, again, everybody has different goals. Financial professionals are out there asking hard questions and looking for opportunities to rebalance because so much has been upset after last year. 
Yeah, that's that's a great point. And speaking of upset from last year, 2023, this year has started off actually pretty strong, especially with the January rally across different asset classes. And that has felt great to a lot of investors to feel that bit of a relief rally. But now in February, the market's been wavering a bit. It's also really hard to ignore this constant drumbeat of impending recession whenever you turn on the TV or open the newspaper. So in terms of how we've framed this on the podcast before, it sort of boils down to these competing narratives about a hard landing versus a soft landing, as in, are we going to hit a recession or can we avoid one? So Lauren, what is your messaging to, to clients, to advisors here on recession possibilities? Well, the first thing I'll say is that not only clients, financial professionals, but also the folks like us who are going in to see them have very different views on recession. And so you said it's hard to ignore the drumbeat or the conversation around recession. There is a huge amount of debate out there, a huge amount of uncertainty. Now, our view, as we have expressed from time to time on the podcast, is that economic data is actually pointing in a pretty clear direction, which is that we are, or we believe that we are, moving step by step closer to a recession. So if I'm sitting down with a financial professional, one of the, the visuals I like to give the most is of economic dominoes. Because as wild and uncertain as this economic cycle has been, we're starting to see the economic dominoes move or topple in a way that's actually pretty standard across historical economic cycles. So when the Fed raises interest rates, you first tend to see interest rate sensitive sectors of the economy topple first, then it's manufacturing, then services and the consumer, and then the labor market. It's this dynamic of leading indicators versus lagging indicators. And right now it can be a bit confusing because some of those leading indicators are those first dominoes have started to topple, but the last ones haven't just yet. But again, to us, this is a matter of timing and sequencing rather than a matter of will we or won't we move closer towards recession. Now, there's one more thing that I'll mention here with respect to a soft landing, because this is very much a part of the conversation around recession. And I'm starting to believe that a soft landing may not be all it's cracked up to be. Because while as investors, we think of recession as being the, the worst case scenario for the economy and markets, they do play an important role or they provide an important service, which is to remove or at least reduce imbalances that have built up in the economy. Now, in the last several economic cycles, we've gotten used to that imbalance being some sort of leverage. So if you think back to the financial crisis, that leverage was in housing, it was in the financial services sector. In previous recessions, it's been in currency or it's been in the technology sector. In this economic cycle, the imbalance isn't so much leverage. Julia, you and I have, have spoken about this before, that household and corporate balance sheets by historical standards look quite strong. But what is potentially imbalanced is liquidity. And that's causing or contributing to the inflation that we're seeing. And a soft landing or a slowdown, modest slowdown in economic activity without causing a big uptick in the labor market or a major recession, I'm not sure that that actually helps us to remove the imbalance the liquidity of the inflation that we're seeing in the economy right now. And because inflation has been so hard for normal families, for businesses, et cetera, avoiding a recession or not fixing that imbalance, I'm not sure is actually the best case scenario for the economy or for markets. That's such an important and a nuanced point, that idea that the market had seemed to rally in the past month on hopes for a soft landing. But it's a great question. Is a soft landing actually the best scenario for, for markets? 
for households because how does that how does that fix the inflation issue? So great point there. And, you know, unfortunately, that sort of does land us yet again in the camp of expecting a recession. Recession is a really scary word to a lot of people. And I think something that a lot of us struggle with is how to communicate with clients when it looks like recession ahead, when this outlook is so gloomy. You've been doing this. You've been talking with clients for, for a long time. I'd love to hear how you try to approach balancing the the need to be honest and clear, even when it's bad news, with the need to maybe to provide some comfort and perspective to clients? Well, the market is not the economy and the economy is not the market. So yes, while we do see Fed policy working its way through the economy and we expect that to continue, it might be potentially bad news for economic activity overall. But compared to one year ago, there's a completely different set of potential investment opportunities ahead. I'll give you just one example. The Fed this time last year hadn't even started hiking interest rates yet. We now have higher rates in the economy, which means higher yield, lots of opportunities. Now, I'll uh, I'll steal something actually from a financial professional that I spoke with just this last week in in a, a trip to uh, Texas, which is that when yields are higher, it allows investors to be a bit more patient. And that really resonated with me because over the last 10, 15 years, the last economic cycle, because yields were so low, investors were looking urgently for opportunities in how to replace that yield and income. And again, that did result in building up some leverage liquidity in the economy. Now, in this economic cycle, because there are higher yields, that urgency to create value, to look for different investment opportunities has more to do with rebalancing. Which of these many opportunities do we want to take advantage of rather than looking for, gosh, are there any alternatives or any opportunities out there at all? And so again, while there is a bit of of gloom with respect to the economic outlook, the market outlook is one that's full of opportunity. Well, you've said that there's basically a question of not if there's opportunity, but where there is opportunity. There's always opportunities in the market. So why don't we go into the asset class discussion now? Tell us what's resonating in the field. All right. Well, first and foremost, in the last economic cycle, because yields were so low and economic growth and inflation were low and stable, we got kind of used to thinking about adding value in a portfolio as having to do with prices moving of any asset class. There's actually two ways to add value into a portfolio. It's prices going up and also building income. And so if this year you believe, and, and we happen to believe, that volatility in the market will be too directional, meaning you'll see prices move up and down as these narratives around hard and soft landing change. That's very different from last year, where volatility moved mostly in one direction. Prices were moving down. If we do see two directional volatility this year, then you might not necessarily add tons of value just from prices moving up. Now, of course, we could always be wrong, but it's really interesting to consider that with yields being higher, focusing on building income and using that side of a portfolio dynamic to generate or add value in a portfolio, that becomes really interesting. And so when we're speaking with investors or financial professionals, we summarize this by saying there are three 
key initiatives or ideas for potentially adding value in a portfolio this year. The first is to stay invested. Again, if volatility is moving in both directions, staying invested may be a way to capture those upside days and add value. The second though, is to build resilience against inflation. And the third, to build defensiveness against that volatility. So it's a three-pronged attack, but again, a market full of opportunities. Okay, so there you mentioned the potential to build resilience and defensiveness in certain areas. Let's take this to the equity market. How do we approach that? What are your best talking points there? Well, there are plentiful opportunities um, across different asset classes, but if you want to just talk about one within the equity space, we believe that we're seeing a pretty meaningful shift in the macroeconomic environment, one that was driven by low and stable rates, inflation, economic growth, to one which is likely to be driven, in our view, by more modest or moderate inflation, which means slightly higher rates, even on a three or five-year basis, potentially, and more volatility. That is an environment where value equity, historically, has outperformed growth equity. Now, value equity we see as having many potential benefits in this environment, the macro I've just shared, but there's also some resilience with respect to cash flows, resilience against wavering or volatile interest rates. They're an important component of the value story. Another one is that when we look at different sectors of the economy, uh, the sectors that tend to be more resilient when you have a lot of market volatility are, are those that have stable cash flows, things like utilities or consumer staples, all the stuff you have to spend money on, even when the economy is slowing. And those sectors on average tend to be more represented in the value universe. So we really like value equity as an investment idea. I will just say one thing, value as an approach is looking for securities that the investor thinks might be underpriced relative to their long-term value. But sometimes things are cheap for a reason. And so we're not advocating necessarily just buying stuff that's cheap relative to history, but rather looking for quality and again, an opportunity to generate income in a portfolio relative to history. Great points. Cheap for a reason, the value trap, very important to, to avoid that. Let's switch gears now to bonds. You noted that it's not just about relying on positive price action to make money. Another side of that is building income. So given that focus that we've seen in building income over the past several months, I'm sure that the discussions about options within fixed income are getting interesting. So tell us what's resonating. Absolutely. Well, there's all different kinds of stories that are interesting to investors in fixed income. I'll share just a couple that, that I find most compelling because there are areas of the fixed income market that look really different in this economic cycle compared to the last one. So from an educational or informational perspective, I, I think these two ideas can be interesting. They're municipal bonds and high yield bonds. So let's start with municipal bonds. Just tell a story. Think about the last couple of years. The economy has been supported by government programs, payroll protection program that helped businesses, stimulus checks or unemployment insurance that helped consumers. But there have also been programs to support state and municipal governments who had so many expenses related to the pandemic and not a whole lot of economic activity. Well, those programs 
combined with higher inflation, higher wages, meaning tax coffers are pretty flush relative to history for state and local municipal governments. It's a really interesting fundamental story for being able to avoid defaults for those municipal investors that are able to look really closely at credit quality. And so we perceive the municipal bond space as being particularly high quality in this environment and having disproportionately, whatever the opposite of benefit it is, they've been disproportionately hurt by the the flows and the interest rate dynamic of last year, because the interest rate dynamic, not as important for municipal bonds in the near term. And, and so we see that credit quality is being really interesting as an investment opportunity for this year. Kind of a similar story, but for completely different reasons is high yield bonds. I mentioned government programs. Another government program through the Federal Reserve was one that allowed high yield borrowers to extend their maturities to shore up their balance sheets throughout the pandemic. You add that over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, many high yield borrowers in the middling credit quality had moved into the leveraged loan or private market space, potentially a higher quality asset class on average with some pretty strong fundamentals heading into this year. And so while high yield bonds have historically been a high beta trade that you wouldn't necessarily want to hold as, as the economy moves closer into recession is higher quality than usual. And so for investors, again, that are able to identify the securities that are less likely to default, there is a, a yield opportunity in high yield that could be captured. I noticed one one area that you did not talk about uh, in that fixed income discussion, which was IG bonds and, and longer dated treasuries. So how how are things feeling about duration? To be completely honest with you, Julia, in, in all the different opportunities and, and ways that we see to potentially add value in a portfolio right now, duration is one of the ones that I'm not sure pays. Now, if you can be incredibly tactical in duration, then absolutely go for it. Um, but one of the trends of the last year or so is that the, the bond market has regularly underpriced or underappreciated the Fed's hawkishness or the, the duration or the, um, the stickiness of inflation. And so in this environment, we're seeing that actually just here in the last couple of days where the, the markets maybe underappreciated the Fed. The Fed is saying it might have two, maybe three more interest rate hikes left, and that caused causes a, a, some volatility in the market, especially in the duration space. Now, if you add that the, the yield curve is incredibly inverted, this isn't the area to add risk from our perspective right now. Again, if you can be very tactical and monitor those changes, then it's potentially interesting. Um, but we are still favoring short of neutral duration in, in our portfolios. All right. So then when it comes to the, the shorter duration side, we have to talk about cash when we're in such an environment of uh, perceived higher risk and potential recession fears. So why not shorter dated treasuries or what could investors do if they're trying to add a little bit more of that yield component without going super long on the duration side? It's a great question. It's one of the most common questions that I'm getting right now. So I'm glad that you went there. If you look at a six-month treasury bill just today in the market, you see a yield of 5.1%. That is not a yield that we've seen in a very long time. And so it can be, it's a very good question to ask. Why would I take credit risk when I could get a 5% yield from taking very, very, very little credit risk with the US government? I think that's a very reasonable question. Now, a couple of important considerations. The first is that some cash 
like securities, like a certificate of deposit, which is essentially a, a savings vehicle for a certain period of time. Those are strategies that may only make sense for investors that have a very specific goal on a specific time frame or time horizon. So if you have a kid who's going to college in three or six or 12 months, then yes, that can make a lot of sense. For other investors, it might make more sense to maintain portfolio liquidity because the market is changing a lot and the opportunity to move in and out of different asset classes for those that have the risk tolerance can be attractive. Another thing just to consider is that because there are many yield opportunities in the market, it can make sense to diversify exposure to cash-like securities or U.S. treasuries with some areas of the corporate credit space. And again, this is, this is meant to allow the portfolio to benefit from economic surprises to the upside while building some resilience to economic surprises on the downside. So some of the common things that we're seeing investors do is to balance a treasury holding with some short-duration high-yield securities and perhaps a longer-duration municipal security. Just an idea, but that's some of the ways that investors are balancing these exposures. Really, really interesting take, including a bit of that barbell discussion there. So that's wonderful. Let's move on to the alternatives side of things. Did you have any discussions in the field over the past few weeks relating to the attractiveness uh, or not of real estate or commodities? You know, it's interesting because commodities are one of the only things that worked well last year. And it's an area of investing that we believe is potentially interesting for an investor. Now, commodities have historically been a high beta asset class, meaning that as economic growth slows and you see market volatility, commodities might see even more market volatility. And so I do want to say that for investors that have a more conservative risk tolerance or a shorter time horizon, commodities may not make sense. But commodities do, first of all, have some diversifying potential in a portfolio, meaning that their price returns tend to look different from other asset classes. But also on a structural basis, many of the themes that we see developing in the economy, if you think the next five or 10 years, rely on commodities to make them happen, whether it's energy independence or technological independence or rethinking supply chains. These are all different activities that are going to require some inputs. And not only that, but demand perhaps being higher, supply, as we've seen, can easily be disrupted as certainly has been the case in energy. And so we do think that's an interesting idea. I am getting a lot of questions on it, but again, it does depend a bit on the investor's risk tolerance. From there, let's dive into what questions you've been receiving from the field. What are some of the most unique or thoughtful lines of questioning you've been receiving that you want to discuss? Probably my favorite question recently has been, you know, if there's so much uncertainty now and the macro environment is so difficult, then what's the next 10-year opportunity? You know, what what does the new economy look like? After all the dust settles, what should we be thinking about? And we, of course, Julia, you know this very well. We've been thinking a lot about this, this very question because there is a lot of uncertainty. And so where can we potentially draw path lines through to the future state? of investing. And one of the things that we see as potentially incredibly interesting is a change in the tenor of the global economy towards self-reliance. I mean, you just think about all the different things that have happened over the past couple of years. You've had Russia's invasion of Ukraine driving a, a much stronger and more urgent focus on energy independence. You had the pandemic, which brought to light that, wow, computer chips are only made in a couple different places and gloves or vaccines or personal protective equipment only made in a few different places. And this multi-decade trudge towards more efficient processes, cheaper processes, 
may not make sense for every single good or service that an economy might need. And these combined factors have driven more of a focus on self-reliance. Now, it's easy to think, okay, well, then there's going to be a lot of reshoring or uh, a lot of change in the way things are produced. And there might be some of that. But if we think about, okay, how does that happen? How do you build new capabilities in certain countries? How do you build resilience around supply chains or duplicate supply chains so that there isn't so much risk of another unexpected event, whether it's a weather event or a health event or an act of war or whatever it may be? The real mechanics of that, to me, start to look like, I mentioned commodities earlier, materials, infrastructure, building the sort of soup to nuts manifestation of these realities. So I love to use the example that if you knew in 1910 that automobiles were going to be the innovation of the century, then would you have invested in this specific car company or that specific car company? Maybe, but that's just a guess at this point. You would know though that every automobile would need some sort of fuel. And you would know that every automobile would need wheels or tires. And so that's the approach that we're starting to think about for the five or 10 year future. What are the, the ingredients to the future state of the economy that we know might need to be leveraged? Understanding that the future state itself is highly uncertain and, and likely holds a lot of exciting innovation that we have yet to see. Well, even though the future state is indeed uncertain, I feel like you've done such an amazing job today enlightening us on the current state of things. Thank you so much for this super fun, unique take on what it's like to be on the road and what you learn when you're there. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Julia. Coming up next, the 60-40 portfolio structure, 60% equity or 40% bonds, is not dead, but we do think it may be time to rebalance. So tune in next week for some portfolio analysis with our strategist, Michael Legalbo. But that's it for today. We'll be back next week for more Market Matters. In the meantime, please remember to give us a like, follow, or review wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you have a question or topic of interest, reach out to us on LinkedIn. You can also follow our views at newyorklifeinvestments.com and click the Insights tab. Until then, I'm Lauren Goodwin. See you next time. Our podcast is produced by Milo Benamots and our music was composed by the fabulous Zach Young. I will now read our disclosures from compliance. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, which may vary. All investments are subject to market risk and will fluctuate in value. This material represents an assessment of the market environment at a specific date, is subject to change, and is not intended to be a forecast of future events or a guarantee of future results. This information should not be relied upon by the reader as research or investment advice regarding the funds or any issuer or security in particular. The strategies discussed are strictly for illustrative and educational purposes and are not a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any securities or adopt any investment strategy. There's no guarantee that any strategies discussed will be effective. This material contains general information only and does not take into account an individual's financial circumstances. This information should not be relied upon as a primary basis for an investment decision. Rather, an assessment should be made as to whether the information is appropriate in individual circumstances and consideration should be given to talking to a financial advisor before making an investment decision. New York Life Investments is both a service mark and the common trade name of certain investment advisors affiliated with New York Life Insurance Company. Securities are distributed by Nylife Distributors, LLC, 30 Hudson Street, Jersey City, New Jersey, 07302, a wholly owned subsidiary of New York Life Insurance Company. Nylife Distributors, LLC is a member of FINRA SIPC.